We're going to be in Mark's gospel again today. This is our 10th week in the gospel of Mark, and we're going to almost finish chapter 1. So we're getting close. We should land the plane on chapter 1 next week. Uh, Today we're going to be focused on five verses, verses 35 through 39. Uh, But to get started today, I want to read just a little bit of where we were last week, because we're still within the first 24 hours of Jesus' public ministry. From the time that he called his first disciples, walked into the city of Capernaum, went to synagogue, had lunch at Peter's house, healed people all night, and then we're going to see today what happened the next morning. To give you a review, uh, so far, Jesus has been mostly proving himself to people. Now, I don't think he had an agenda to prove himself. He wasn't worried about what people thought about him in the way that you and I might be. Certainly, if you were in my shoes today and I told you, hey, uh, we're going to have church this morning, and I would love if you would just come up in the middle of my sermon, interrupt me, and start teaching, you would probably just leave. You would just walk away, get in your car, and go home. Some of you would be like, I'd love that chance, which is why you're not up here, but that's okay. Uh, In Jesus' day and age, it was common for a rabbi to stand from among the congregation at synagogue and to offer an insight or a perspective or simply to read from the Jewish Bible, from the Tanakh, maybe one of the prophets or a psalm in Hebrew. So Jesus did that uh, in the middle of him teaching and explaining what was going on in the Tanakh. A man who'd been possessed by a demon stood up and screamed at Jesus. Jesus handled that situation and then went to uh, Simon, who at this, later in the story, his name will be changed to Peter, same guy, but to Simon's house where he encounters Simon's mother-in-law and then uh, things sort of move forward from there. So if you would, look at verse 29. We're going to read a little bit. I'm going to give you just some helpful, hopeful, hopefully clarifying thoughts here. And then we'll jump into the main body of the text that we're here to discuss. Mark chapter 1, verse 29. That same day, so the same day as the Sabbath, where Jesus was in the synagogue, it's a Saturday morning, Jesus left the synagogue and he entered into the house of Simon, who was also called Peter, and Simon's brother Andrew, and along came James and John, two other brothers that Jesus had called to be his disciples just a couple of days before. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with fever. And immediately upon entering the house, the people in the house told Jesus about her and about her sickness. And Jesus came, and he took her by the hand, and he lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. Now, we quoted a guy last week named Alexander McLaren, a great preacher in the Manchester part of England in the 1880s, who said that this touch, this grabbing of Simon's mother-in-law's hand was, to quote him, a condensation of the very principle of the Incarnation. It's a snapshot of what Jesus came to do, what he was about, and really his character. He was shocking. He was unprecedented. There was no category for a holy man being willing to do something like this. His movements, his tone of voice, his actions are all loaded with spiritual meaning. He was compassionate, and he was, in essence, revolutionary. He was doing things that anybody could have done, but in a way that really rewrote the rules of what it meant to be human, what it meant to be a person in that day and age. Now, as a result of this healing, word spread quickly throughout the city of Capernaum. And as soon as the Sabbath ended, you may remember we said last week when the third star was visible in the night sky, that meant that nightfall had come and people flood the streets and begin to make their way to Simon's house in mass. People who've been oppressed by demons, people who have been uh, disabled since birth, people with diseases, fevers, bleeding, uh, derangement, folks who are mute, who can't see, they all line up and they begin to crowd the door of Simon's mother-in-law's house and his house in such a way that uh, Mark wrote it down, the way that Peter told the story was that the whole city was at the door. That's the way that it felt like in the room, okay? So that evening, verse 32, at sundown, they brought to Jesus all who were sick and who were oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered there. And Jesus healed many who were sick with various diseases. He cast out many demons. 
but he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So as the pile of wheelchairs and crutches grows in Peter's front yard, heaven touches down on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. This is where we finished our time with God's word last week. The miracles of Jesus' first Sabbath were not a warm-up for the real ministry. They ought not be overlooked by people like you and I. And they're not simply exhibits in the courtroom case for Christianity. These miracles teach us the point. They're central. They're focal to who Jesus is and what he did. Each time Jesus touched the skin of a living, breathing person who was afflicted by life-destroying oppression or sickness or stigma, he saw his own image in them. Don't forget the creation account. God the Son, who is now Jesus on the earth, thousands of years in time earlier, was a part of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, who put the image of God into humanity. So Jesus is not interacting with people that are foreign to him. He sees himself in each of them. They are bearing his image, whether they know that they are or not. And so he heals and corrects and restores back to the way that the world was meant to be when God created it. A world without sickness, a world without death, and without sin. Capernaum that night was swept up into the eternal chorus of praise that we occasionally see glimpses of in the Bible story. The, the never-ending cries of holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty that exists around his throne room in eternity. That night, Capernaum got as close as anybody on earth has ever been to truly worshiping and exalting God the Father because of what they had seen of his character in Jesus, his son. And at last that night, the crowd either made their way home or possibly fell asleep in the road, in alleyways, in the yard of Simon's house, maybe even all over the floor of his living room. And Jesus and his apprentices slept as well. And that brings us to verse 35 and the portion of scripture that I want us to study today. Mark 1:35. Rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus departed, so he left the house, and he went out to a desolate place, and there he spent time in prayer. The tense of the verb pray in Greek tells us that it was a, a long period of time, probably hours and hours that he was there. He didn't just walk, say a quick prayer, and head back in time for breakfast. He was there for a purpose, and he stayed there. Simon, Andrew, James, and John searched for Jesus, and they found him, and they said to him, everyone is looking for you. And Jesus said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is what I came out here to do. And he went throughout all of Galilee, which is the region around the Sea of Galilee, a big donut-shaped piece of land, lots of cities that subsistence fish off of that sea. And as he worked his way around, he preached in their synagogues, and he cast out the demons that were oppressing those people as well. Now, I love the picture of the Savior of the whole world, God in the flesh, the foretold Messiah of Israel, tiptoeing through the living room before dawn, right? I mean, it probably looks a little bit like the aftermath of a college party. There's people on the floor, people have, have cups and plates and bowls laid out in different spots. They're using their blankets and their backpacks as pillows, and Jesus is there trying as carefully as he can to not step on anybody's fingers or toes while he sneaks out the doorway that morning. It's surprising to us to think of God incarnate, the God and ruler of the universe, who sits on the throne of eternity and governs everything, having to be careful not to disturb anybody early in the morning. Jesus is always surprising to us like this. If we slow down in our approach to the Gospels, we find out that there's a whole lot of depth and character and color to the way that these stories are told, because that's the way that they happened. Yes, Jesus was God in the flesh, but he was still a man. And then once you take one step outside of him into his inner ring, 
Peter, James, and John, one step outside of that into the 12 disciples, these men are not God in the flesh. They are just men in the flesh. And they do what men do, and they're confused, and they get upset. They get frustrated and scared, worried and and anxious and jealous. And so I, I think we have to choose to take the time to slow down and ask ourselves, what would this have been like? It's okay for us to do that. Maybe a pastor's never given you that permission. You don't have to read this like a textbook. It's a story. And it was an oral story before it was a written story. So it's okay to take the time to let your imagination really encounter who Jesus was and what he did. When we see Jesus speak and act in the Gospels, his actions and his words are unexpected. He's counterintuitive to us. Sometimes I think that we struggle to put our finger on what exactly made Jesus so different from the other people who we encounter in the New Testament. Even pastors oftentimes have a hard time totally defining what it was about Jesus that made him almost always subversive. Now, don't misunderstand me. He was divine, okay? That's, that's the answer. That's the easy answer, and it's true. But there was something about his character and his nature that almost comes through, but we just don't seem to have the equipment to perceive when we read about him. He's intriguing. He seems a little bit mysterious. We find him in social settings where we go, I know what's going to happen. And then he does the opposite. And he doesn't seem to do it in a way that's defiant. He doesn't do it in a way that sticks his middle finger up and says, ha ha, you guessed wrong, which is probably what we would have done if we were going to go against the curve. It would have been to make some kind of statement. He just seems to be essentially different. There's something about him that doesn't quite fit into the mold of the way that we live, our instincts and our nature. This is my best effort to define what it is about Jesus, and hopefully this will be helpful to you. If you have a scripture journal, feel free to write this down if you'd like to. Jesus was not just revolutionary. That's true. He was a living human revolution. This is the great difference between Jesus and every other religious leader that you've ever heard of. And then step outside of that category into political leaders, war leaders, national leaders. People can figure out how to lead a revolution. They can start a movement. They can get you mad enough about stuff or scared enough about stuff that you too will light a torch and grab a pitchfork and mob the city or town hall or whatever. But Jesus himself lived in a way that was demonstrative. He wasn't just here to stir people up into a movement. He was himself a living example. And that's the difference. Because study the life of any revolutionary that you want to and they're total moral failures. Of course they are. They're just like you and me. They have no special equipment. Sure, they have a winsome voice. Maybe they can read and write, and that was unique in their time period. Or they're particularly violent, or they're particularly um, charismatic, or whatever, that seems to hook people and get them drawn in. But only Jesus can stand the scrutiny of peeling back the layers of sort of the figurehead that he was and taking a hard look at the man underneath the movement. And when you do that, when you dig down to him, you find something unique that he wasn't just trying to change the world, he was living in a different set of rules. He himself was not like the people around him. Yes, his teaching flipped the religious world on its head, but his character was unlike any other rabbi or expert of the law in his day. His intimacy with God the Father is what made miracles happen everywhere he went. But if you really get to know his story, it's almost like he was moving at a different speed from the people around him. I don't know if you guys have ever seen um, old footage that's been sped up or slowed down in order to match the frame rate that we're used to. So uh, a number of years ago, there was a movie put together. It's a documentary done by Peter Jackson, who did The Lord of the Rings. Uh, Peter Jackson is a huge World War I aficionado. He has 
I guess when you produce the Lord of the Rings, you have enough money to do this. He has warehouses full of old howitzers and guns and equipment and machinery. And like, he, I don't think he cosplays in it, but he'll just like walk through it and just touch it and smell it. Like he really, really likes World War I a lot. And so he decided to take old World, I footage, World War I footage and colorize it. And then they slowed it down enough that they could read the lips of the people in the footage they turned that into a script and had voice actors voice it, and then they put it underneath the footage. And so there, you can go out and find it. I think it's called, um, I can't remember the name of it. Uh, do you remember Mike? No, 1917 is a, is a fictional movie set in World War I. Mike and I went to go see it at the theater. That's why I'm asking him. Yeah, I don't remember either. I think it's, huh? Yes, they shall not grow old. That's exactly right. Thank you, Mitch. It's fabulous. It's heartbreaking. But there's footage of these young men. It shows the difference between before they go to war and when they come back, which is really significant. And there's footage of them walking through town, celebrating, and you can hear their voices for the first time ever. Now, if you watch that footage without all that extra help and interpretation, it feels almost like a cartoon. Like, it feels like that yakety sax song should be underneath it. Like, they're just moving too fast because that's the way that recording worked back then. I'll give you a more modern-day example of this, okay? I listen to a lot of podcasts. I watch YouTube videos to try to kind of fill my brain with knowledge, and I often speed them up because I want to get more kind of fit into the time that I have. So if I'm doing the dishes, I'll listen to a podcast, but I listen to it at like 1.5 speed. I don't know if any of you can relate to that or not. This is the idea when I see Jesus in the scriptures. It's like he's moving at a different pace from the people that are around him. It's as if he is in color and everything else is in black and white. It's as if he is moving at the pace that you and I move and the people around him are frantically running around like a Three Stooges movie trying to figure out what to do and where to go and what's going on. And I love that because it shows how human these stories are. When we look at Jesus, when we see him, we see a person who seems to be moving at maybe three quarters of the speed that everybody around him is. And if we can be honest with ourselves, maybe also about three quarters of the speed at which we tend to move. Jesus was reclaiming human nature. He was rewriting the rule books of what it meant to be a person. For thousands of years, people had been figuring out what to do on their own. Just like you and I, they had been inheriting class and culture and rules of life, both spoken and unspoken, from their parents and their grandparents and the government and the stories that their culture told and the drawings that were on the sides of their temples or cave walls or homes or whatever. These things were what they were immersed in, and Jesus came to give them some new air to breathe. But more than that, he himself was breathing it as well. Now, I'm telling you this because I want you to understand. When and where you encounter Jesus in the Gospels, doing something that you can't explain, it's not because you're stupid. I mean that. I'm tell I want you to understand, really grasp that. There's nothing wrong with you if when you read the Gospels, you cannot understand why Jesus is doing what he did. That's a hint to you. That's a clue that that's a good point to stop and dig as deep as you possibly can, to mine that and mine it and mine it until you find what's underneath that. Because Jesus doesn't do anything on accident. And oftentimes we memorize his more famous teachings and we sort of put them together in the Reader's Digest version of what it means to follow Jesus, but it's in the nuance. It's in the moments that almost appear off screen, that the gospel writers just barely allude to, that so much of Jesus' character is expressed. For example, in Jesus' life, he's always moving around, but he's never in a hurry. He never seems to be like, we got to run, disciples. This miracle took too long. I got to get to Bethsaida before this guy gets on a boat. Otherwise, I'm not going to heal him, and he's going to be mute the rest of his life. Jesus is never in a hurry, even to the point that people die who he was on his way to heal. And what does he do? He just raises them from the dead 
he's good, it's going to be fine. Everybody else is just like ripping their hair out, literally, as they mourn the loss of a person. And Jesus is on time. He's rarely upset. When he does get upset, it's because he's come across evidence of the desolation wrought by sin. He's not surprised at human nature. He doesn't have to be sarcastic because he's so honest. (laughs) He's so blunt already. When he comes up against the powers of darkness, yes, it riles him. And that's what he came to do was defeat those. But he doesn't lose his temper. He doesn't fly off the handle. He never rages that we can see. If you were, as an example, this is just for the sake of argument, to try to make this point. If you were to take away everything that Jesus said, his actual words, and just consider how he spoke, who he spoke to, where his eyes were, who he touched, his tone of voice, and his attitude, you will see that though he was a human in a human body, he comes across distinctively unique. There's something about him that is so radically different, we don't really have words for it. He was cognitive dissonance in human form. And that's what I mean when I say that he himself was a revolution. Now, don't misunderstand me. Did he come to seek and save the lost? Yes. Did he come to die as a substitute, to return to life as our example of the life waiting for us in eternity? Yes, he did. I have no interest in minimizing those things. What I want to do is maximize everything else that we don't look at, that we don't talk about, that we don't think through. Because all of it together is a life, and it's a life lived as an example for you that by the power of the Holy Spirit, by grace, through faith, in that Christ, because of his death and resurrection, that life is open to you. It's more than having to just grit your teeth and get through it. You have access by the power of the Spirit to live in a way that emulates and glorifies Jesus. Not to make much of yourself, but to make much of him. But even underneath those big truths that we're familiar with, baked into his life and his character and his person is something that, at least for me, my soul longs to know and longs to be like. Jesus was a living human revolution. Theologian and author G.K. Chesterton wrote this in his classic book, Orthodoxy. We'll have it for you on the screen if you want to read along. He said, to the Orthodox, there must always be a case of revolution. In other words, if you are truly following Jesus, then there's always this sort of sense of revolution in your life, in the way that you live, in the way that you think, in the way that you manage your household, love your spouse, parent your kids, give your money, all those things. Why? Because in the hearts of men, God has been put under the feet of Satan. Now, not in eternity, but in our hearts, in the way that we order our lives and what we care about, that's often the case. In the upper world, in the heavens, hell once rebelled against heaven. That's how all the darkness kind of came to break into the world and Satan was cast down. But in this world, heaven is now rebelling against hell. That's Jesus. Jesus is simple, calm, collected, constant rebellion against hell. When and where he sees the influence and power of Satan, even in the minutia of the details of the way that our minds think, things that you and I would assume are totally innocent, Jesus pushes back just a little bit by going a different way. His whole life is heaven rebelling against hell. If you don't understand this, in kind of a cosmic scope, Jesus came to a place that was shaped by heaven, that's the earth, but had become infected by hell. And he did that to reclaim it as heaven's territory again. And if we can accept that Jesus is revolutionary in every way, I think we can begin to understand why everything he does is so counter to our human intuition. So that's the principle. Come back with me to Mark chapter 1. You're going to see this play out in front of your eyes. If you and I 
had healed and emancipated the bodies and spirits of hundreds or possibly even thousands of people. Capernaum probably had about 10,000 people that lived in the city at this time in human history, okay? If we had done that the night before, what would we be doing the next morning? What would we immediately start to do all over again after this revolutionary night of setting people free from physical ailments and maladies and spiritual oppression? We'd get up and do it again, right? We'd go, this is the whole show. I'll do this until there's nobody left on the face of the earth who needs healing. That would be all we would be about for the rest of our days. Maybe some of us would record it, right? We'd pull our phone out to prove to other people that it was real. Some of us might live stream it if we have a platform online. Maybe some of us would even call the news or another major video production network to try to be featured or have a documentary made. Some of us, if we can be totally honest, would find a nice, polite way to monetize the miraculous. I mean, let's just shoot each other straight here. We might as well make a few bucks along the way, right? I mean, we're giving people back their lives after all. How do you put a price on that? And a few of us, again, I know human nature. I'm just like you. A few of us would try to exploit the miracles and the people who needed them in order to build power and to build influence and to build opportunity for ourselves. Now, I raise those issues not to condemn you, but to simply ask you, what does Jesus do instead? He went on a hike. He just left. Way before anybody could get up and argue with him, he disappeared from the house. And he didn't leave a note behind him, okay? He disappeared for all intents and purposes. For the sake of these disciples, they are very possibly assuming that they will never see him again. That he was with them for 24 hours. Maybe yesterday was a fever dream. Maybe they were all sick and they didn't know it. What was in that soup that you made, Simon's mother-in-law? These are questions that they're probably asking each other. Can you imagine the panic that swept first through Peter's house and then later through the city of Capernaum when this miracle-working God in the flesh is just gone the next morning? Now, if Jesus isn't gone, where is he? How do you find a man in the hills outside of town if you can't call him on his cell phone, if he doesn't have an air tag or a tile in his wallet for you to track? You can't find my Jesus on your phone and figure out that he's up in the hills in this one particular nook that he liked and he's praying. He's kneeling down, so he's not even probably standing up. He's in prayer somewhere, up in the desert hills, among the rocks and trees. And in case you don't know a lot about ancient Near East culture, nobody's wearing neon in Jesus' day and age. All right? He didn't jog up there in his bright yellow athleisure. He's wearing earth tones out among the earth. You can't see him. I mean, he's essentially camouflaged. How are you supposed to find a guy like this? Not only that, but he's in prayer. He's in silent presence with God the Father. He's not singing. He's not clapping his hands and going, here I am, here I am. The men are out scouring the hillside, probably for hours, trying to find where their rabbi went. This is very unlike a rabbi to do this. Now, that leaves us with another question. Why? Why would Jesus do this? Why would he retreat for prayer the day after the Sabbath, which is supposed to be the day that your life revolves around God the Father? They just had prayer, and they just studied the Tanakh the day before in the synagogue. Two days before that, Jesus had returned from 40 days in the wilderness of being silent with God. Why retreat now? Well, I can tell you why, but first I'm going to tell you why not. Because again, I want to make sure that you really understand what I'm saying to you. Jesus didn't go into the hills because he was running from something. He wasn't running from the crowd. He wasn't running from the corporate neediness of Capernaum. He wasn't running from the pressure to lead or to teach or to heal. Because remember, we said this again and again when we studied silence and solitude. They're not reactionary. They're not for people who just want to be in the presence of the Father because there's nowhere else to go and what am I supposed to do and I'm so stressed out and I just need some time to be alone. 
In her book, Invitation to Solitude and Silence, Ruth Haley Barton said this. She said, silence and solitude are not self-indulgent exercises for times when an overcrowded soul needs a little time to itself. Rather, they are concrete ways of opening, opening yourself to the presence of God beyond human effort, beyond the human constructs that cannot fully contain the divine. So in other words, Jesus retreated into the hills outside of Capernaum, Capernaum to open himself to the presence of the Father, and to do that beyond human effort and beyond human constructs. What is a human construct? Well, sit, sitting in synagogue is a human construct. Sitting under the teaching of another person is a human construct. It's two people doing their best to get each other to God. And it's not a waste of time, but it's also not everything that there is for us. It's not sufficient. We don't need an intercessor and a priest the way that people in Jesus' day did. We can access God directly, and Jesus could too, because he was without sin. He did not have the nature of a sinner like we do. Don't overlook all the places that Jesus didn't go that morning. He didn't return to the synagogue to slip quietly into one of the pews because that was the only place he could experience God's presence. He wasn't up early to pour over the scrolls of Jeremiah and Isaiah. He didn't journey into Jerusalem to try and find the Father in the most holy place, in the temple. All places that would have been logical and that you and I would have gone, hmm, yes, a mature Christian. He knows the scriptures. He knows that the church is where God lives. He knows the temple is a sacred and holy place. Jesus goes away to a quiet place, a desolate place. And there he prayed. There in the dark, he lifted up his soul to the Father. And once again, uninterrupted, at least at first, he was in the presence of the author of life. Though Jesus was God, he did not live life as God apart from the Father, but he lived life as a man in dependence upon God. This is why Jesus is not totally alien to us in the same way that we sometimes feel like the Father is alien to us in the Old Testament. Jesus is not a supernatural space alien invading Earth with UFOs and tractor beams. He's a man living so differently from you and I that we can feel it, even when we can't name it or exactly put our finger on what sets him apart. Hear from him himself. This is in John chapter 5. Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth. The Son, he's talking about himself, can do nothing of his own accord. Just let that sit in your brain for today and tomorrow. Do you even believe that that's true? Have you ever considered that before? The son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. Nine chapters later in John 14, towards the end of Jesus' life, he said to his disciples, the words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority. And we learned that a couple of weeks ago in Mark 1, that he's having to remind his disciples. But the father who dwells in me does his works. Jesus depended on the Father for both the authority and the power to teach and heal and send away demons. Jesus is the eternal God incarnate. He is the creator of all. He does hold everything together by his power, and yet he still practiced silence, solitude, and prayer. And that's where we find him in verse 35. It's where we'll find him again and again and again in his ministry. And it was there in prayer that he was absolutely ambushed by his apprentices. I think you've probably had this experience before. Uh, if you either have a child under the age of six or a cat, uh, you've probably had the experience of trying to use the restroom alone and not being allowed to do that, right? Yes, you're laughing because you've been there and probably more than once and probably you've done everything in your power to lay out the rules and turn on the TV. Bluey is playing in the living room. There's snacks on the plate, right? You just want to get away for a second to use the restroom and as soon as you get in there, mom, mom, 
and you're like, if I answer, now we're going to have a conversation. If I don't, am I a bad mom? I don't know. Okay, this is sort of Jesus' experience. And it's an experience that I had. I want to share with you this story. I think it'll make you laugh. Just a couple weeks ago. Okay, back in October, I took a day, a Thursday, which is typically my Sabbath, and I drove out to the valley north of town. There's a campground out there that our Association of Churches maintains. And so I called the groundskeeper and I said, can I just come sit in the basement of one of the buildings? I'm going to try to do a quiet day. I'm going to try to be silent and alone for six hours. I know. You can be proud of me. I am too, okay? And I'm not saying that to be holier than thou. I kind of went because I was feeling guilty. I was like, if I'm going to preach to you guys for five weeks to do this, I should probably put my money where my mouth is. So I drove out there. I got there about eight in the morning, met the groundskeeper. It was just me, him, and his wife on property. Nobody else there that I knew of, okay? He let me in the basement of one of the buildings. There's like a ping pong table, an old ratty couch. I was like, this is perfect. So I went in there. I turned the lights off. turned my phone off, not just on silent, off, all the way off. I know, it's crazy. And then I put my keys next to my phone, and I was like, I'm not going to touch this. I'm just going to stay here. I'm going to be quiet. And so I sat. And I did my silence and solitude thing. I tried to acknowledge God. I tried to let go of the stuff that I was carrying and just sit and listen to him. And I ended up sitting still and kind of I drifted into sleep a little bit, then back out, then I prayed, then I sort of had some really vivid memories from my childhood that came to the surface, just some different stuff happened, which was really neat. And I was there for about three hours before I just like had to read something. I just had to put a little bit more into my brain. I couldn't sit any longer. But about two-thirds of the way through, okay, two hours in, I've been sitting. It was cold where I was. I had worn all my snow gear because I thought I might like walk around the lake at the campground at some point. And it started to get colder and colder in the room that I was in. So I put my uh, beanie back on, I put my jacket back on, my gloves, my boots, because I was just sitting still. So I wasn't, my heart rate was really slow, I wasn't circulating super well, so I was starting to get really cold in my fingers and toes. And as I was sitting there, I realized that if I was going to sit with my eyes closed anyway, I didn't need my glasses on. So I took my glasses off, I folded them up, I put them down next to me on the couch. And then I realized, about 15 minutes later, as I was breathing in and out of my nose slowly, that the end of my nose is getting really cold. I don't know if this happens to you guys. This is like an Alaska thing for me, that if I breathe in and out of my nose too long when it's cold without warm air, my sinuses get really blocked up. So I was like, well, how am I going to warm my nose up? I don't really want to put my, hand in my, my head in my hands. So I took my beanie, and I pulled it down over my face, okay? You're laughing. Maybe you, I don't know if I told you this story. You're going to laugh again. So I pulled the beanie over my face. I have my hood on, ski gloves, black jacket, black pants, boots, Lights are off. There's windows in this basement room, but it's dark, okay? Now, what I didn't know was, at the same time that I was out there, there was a guy who had come in from Wasilla who was working on the boilers. And so he was up in the upstairs of the building, and he was working his way through the building. He worked on the boilers. He was checking the heat register in each of the rooms. And it came time, about two hours into my silence and solitude, I've just been sitting in the basement of this room like a, like a ski gear mannequin at REI, just totally still, face covered up. It came time for him to walk into the room that I was in. And so I'm just sitting there. I'm just, I'm worshiping God. I'm talking to him about how amazing he is. I'm trying to really confess the, the deepest longings of my heart. And all at once, the lights turn on, which I could feel through my eyelids. And the door opens. And then I hear a man shout a word that I can't say to you. Uh, it's the, yeah, it's the number one word on my list of words that I can never say to you. Uh, and it's the one you're thinking of right now. It's that one. So he says that word because what did he see? He walked into a room that was supposed to be empty of human life, and maybe he thought it was. I don't know. He probably thought he stumbled into a serial killer's lair. He opens the door, and there I am. My face is covered up. I have a hood on. Okay, so I hear him, and I'm shocked, and immediately I thought it was funny. So I'm trying to yell through the beanie, I'm a person. 
it's okay. That's what a serial killer would say, right? It's okay. You're safe. No, you're not. So I, I'm like struggling, trying to get my glasses on, get up, and he's gone. He's in his truck. He went away. I don't know <laughs> if he ever came back to check the heater or not, but anyway. So here's the deal. <laughs> Minus the vulgarity from the boiler man, this is Jesus' experience. He's gotten away to be with the Father. And he doesn't have the confession part, okay? I want to be super clear with you. He doesn't need to take all that preliminary time that I do to get to the point where I'm ready to hear from God. He's just there. He's in. I mean, it's the, it's the breath of fresh air and the relief that it's supposed to be to his soul to be back in the presence of the Father alone. And here comes Peter. Jesus! Jesus! I mean, they're probably sliding down the hills. They're freaking out. They can't get too far from each other because night's going to fall and they're going to have to go back to town. And they find him. And what does Peter say to him? He says, which it's cool that it's quoted for us, right, in Greek. He says to Jesus, everyone is looking for you. And that feels dramatic because it is dramatic. The way that he says it in Greek implies the tone that he's saying to Jesus What are you thinking? Jesus, this is not how this works. Do you not know what rabbis do? Like, maybe you don't understand the significance of this. You probably don't, and that's okay. This would be like on Sunday at 4.15 in the afternoon, the best quarterback of your favorite NFL team just not coming to the game. Not because he's making a political statement, not because he's sick, because he got up early and he's just been praying in the mountains the whole time. Now, five of you are going, yeah, that's my quarterback. That sounds really cool. But the people who pay him and all the fans and everybody on his team and everybody on the other team would not be okay with that. That to them would be dereliction of duty. It would be irresponsible. That's the way that Jesus' disciples see him. They think he's irresponsible. They're saying to him, like, this is what we came to do. You did the demon. You killed all the sick. They're back. They went home. Some of them took a shower. They had breakfast. They called all their friends. People are here from Bethsaida and Gennesaret and all around Galilee. They're here. Everyone, literally, that we've seen today is looking for you. What are you doing up here? Why? Why would you do this is the implication of the question that Peter asks the Savior of the world. And these are supposed to be his apprentices. These are, to use an old word, his Talmudim, the men who are going to learn from him the way to be him when he is gone. And this most simple of actions is so revolutionary to them. It's so countercultural to every category that they have for what it means to be a leader, to have influence, to be a healer, that they don't even consider for a second that maybe there's something to be learned here. Now, in one of the other accounts of the Gospels, one of the stories in the New Testament, is that one of the disciples speaks up and says, Lord, will you teach us to pray at a similar moment to this? But that happens later. They have to go through this a couple more times before one of them, kind of the light bulb comes on and they go, maybe this is on purpose. Is it possible that this could be something Jesus is doing for us? The whole city has been at the doors of the town that night. Isn't this what Jesus came to do? Isn't this the point, Lord? Isn't this why we're here. And what does Jesus say? Look back at verse 38. He says, let's go. Like he's almost like, oh, took you long enough. <laughs> let's go. On to the next towns. Here we go. I mean, it's not just, no, we don't need to go back to Capernaum now. It's as if Jesus is already halfway to wherever he's going and all he's been waiting on is for them to catch up so they can go together. Revolutionary. This isn't how you lead people in Jesus' day and age. It wouldn't even be that effective for you. You'd be like, 
did you even hear my question? Where, what is going on? All these sick people are at the base of this mountain. They drug themselves as far as they could possibly get. We're up here to get you. Are you not going to go back down there and heal them? What does Jesus say? Let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also. That seems to be the mission. The point seems to be what Jesus said in Mark chapter 1, verses 14, 15, and 16, that the kingdom of God is near at hand. Repent and believe. That seems to be the point. Not the healings, not the demonic exorcisms. Now, they're going to happen, but Jesus says the purpose and the mission and the point is to set people free spiritually for eternity. He says, that's what I came out here to do, and not out into the podunk town of Capernaum, out of eternity. That's why I stepped out of eternity into time, was born as a baby at Christmas time, grew up, learned how to be a carpenter, abandoned the trade, became a rabbi, called all of you. I came to preach this gospel, that the kingdom is here. Let's go tell people about the kingdom. Long ago, the kingdom had been near, church. I hope you get this. Genesis 1 and 2, the kingdom collided with earth. God brought it all down to creation. And then we broke it. We said, no, 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 you can keep your crown. We'll handle it from here. This is the first moment for thousands of years that human beings have had access to the God of the universe. And the disciples don't get it. They don't get it because people can't talk and people can't see and people can't walk. And that seems to be so much more important. It feels more urgent to them. And the urgency that they carry in their hearts has begun to take over their lives. This is what in ministry we often refer to as the tyranny of the urgent. It's the opportunity to never run out of stuff to do because that's what it means to be a minister. There's never, you don't reach the end of the list of people who need help. You don't reach the end of the list of people who need healing, who need deliverance, who need money, who need coaching, counseling, whatever. You're never gonna do it. It doesn't mean you don't help those people. But if all you try to do is meet those needs, you'll never do the thing that was the point. And Jesus says the point is to preach the gospel and to tell people that the kingdom is here. This means that a second marathon evening of healing was not within the Father's will for Jesus. That's what we read in John 5 and John 14. Jesus only does what he sees the Father doing. He only does what the Father tells him to do. Rising early to pray and to share presence with the Father was within the Father's will for Jesus that day. And that is revolutionary. It was revolutionary then, and it's revolutionary today. Even in churches that meet in Jesus' name, we want the life of Jesus without the lifestyle We often reject spiritual practice because we want the gospel to be a shortcut to blessing in life. Especially those of us who have spiritually descended from the family tree of evangelicalism. We want the gospel simple. We want decisions for Christ made quickly. We want everything about Jesus to be canned and mass-produced and shipped out to the world as soon as possible. If you can't fit it in our four-page gospel tract, then it must be too complicated. But here is Jesus in the wilderness not fitting any of those categories. He's in prayer, and we want to hurry him back to town because there's work to be done. We rush Jesus out of the Father's presence. We rush him back onto the stage before the crowd has time to get bored and pick another rabbi to follow. Church, we have to slow down. We desperately need to crank the timing down on the podcast of our lives to .75, to find a way to move at the speed of Jesus. You're not going to get outside of his will by going a little bit slower. The train is not going to leave you behind. This sense of urgency, this desperate pounding of the drum to row and row and row the boat of the gospel deeper and deeper into enemy territory isn't always the way. Sometimes it is. 
Sometimes it's a full day of teaching in the morning. It's healing a lady at lunch, having to explain that while you're putting food in your mouth, and then staying up all night healing people. Sometimes it's that. And sometimes it's getting up early in the morning and going out in the mountains and not worrying what anybody else is going to think about that because you need to be in the presence of the Father. We have to get behind Jesus. We have to try to follow him instead of dragging him around on a leash. And that's going to require that we slow down. If we will do that, if we will learn to live from Jesus, not just how to regurgitate Jesus' teaching, but actually live his lifestyle, then he will become more to a teacher, more than a teacher to us. He will become a rabbi. He will become a teacher of life, and we will become teachers of life who share a life with people who have no life. And that is the message and the method of the New Testament church. So I'll leave you with this. I'll leave you with a question that I will answer, okay? But a question that I think will help you today, especially if the way of Jesus still seems unnecessarily complicated or spiritual or, or whatever your complaint might be. In Mark 135, Jesus prayed, okay? Hopefully I've made that point to you as clearly as possible. Two verses later, in Mark 137, Jesus inter- excuse me, Peter interrupted Jesus in the name of pragmatism. What do you think Jesus was praying about in the hills that day? You could guess all day long, right? Did you know that you can actually find an answer to that in the Bible? Has it ever crossed your mind that Jesus was maybe praying for someone and possibly even praying for the person who interrupted his prayers? In Luke 22, at the end of Jesus' life, Pardon me. Jesus and his apprentices were observing the Jewish Passover. It would be the last Passover they would observe, and Jesus would retcon the whole thing and say, now this is communion. Now this is the Lord's Supper that you're going to take forever and ever until my return. Okay. Famously in verse 34 of Luke 22, you've heard this before, Jesus prophesied to Peter that he would deny Jesus three times, right? You've probably seen the movie, before the rooster crows at sunrise. But two verses before that, Jesus says something that you've probably missed every time you've read this that I think is going to give you goosebumps in light of where we've been in Mark 135. Jesus is speaking here in Luke twenty two thirty one. Take a look. He says, Simon, Simon, he's snapping his fingers. Pay attention. Satan has demanded to have all of you, you 12 disciples. He wants to sift you like wheat. You can read that in a sort of a modern phrasing. He wants to pick you apart. He wants to really stretch you and find your weaknesses and destroy you. Verse 32, but I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when, and here's the prophecy, when you have turned back, so Jesus is already telling Peter, you're going to make a big mistake and you're going to come back, it's going to be okay. When you've come back, strengthen your brothers. Peter misses it all. He misses everything Jesus says and he says, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and death. Jesus says, I'm telling you, Peter telling you, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times. Not that you followed me, not that I'm your rabbi, that you know me, that we've even met. Simon, I've prayed for you, Jesus says. Many times, in many places, specifically in the wilderness outside of Capernaum, oh, about three years ago, on a Sunday morning. Jesus is asking Peter, do you remember that day? When we were on top of the world together, none of you could have imagined it would end like this. But I knew, and I was praying for you. Church, this is the depth of the love and the mercy and the patience of our Lord Jesus. This is the wisdom of our rabbi. This is why he is worth following. Because even as his backwards, naive disciples are interrupting him, he is in prayer for their very souls. He goes to God the Father and says, preserve them, keep them, love them. This is not going to get any easier. These naive men have no idea what's ahead of them. 
They have no idea what they're going to see Jesus do as he casts out demons and heals the sick and defends the poor and attacks the wealthy and the strong and the powerful in his system. They're going to see their rabbi nailed to a cross, screaming and weeping and dying. And yet on this day, this Sunday morning, all they can think about is the crowd. One more autograph, one more healing, one more miracle, one more song. Jesus, don't you know what we could be doing? But he's got his eye on the prize. His heart is already with them that night in Luke 22. As he says, we've got to tell anybody who will hear it that the kingdom of heaven is near. This is the great plan of the Father. We know this because Jesus tells us he only does what the Father allows him to do. And it's not a sideshow to the really exciting part of Jesus' ministry. Jesus, in prayer in the wilderness outside of Capernaum, is the heartbeat of our rabbi. It is the thing that he is about. It is central, integral, revolutionary, and it's something that we ought to take very, very seriously. I'm not here today to convince you to spend 30 minutes in prayer every morning this week. I don't want you to do something that's going to last seven or ten days. What I want you to do is in your mind and your heart today, consider the priority of prayer in the life of Jesus, who arguably needed it least, and then just consider where on your chart does prayer land for you. I believe that if you'll do that, consider it, Think about it. The Spirit of God will lead and guide you. You don't need me to give you a nine-step plan and a handout to take with you today. Our Savior prayed. He prayed for his people. He prayed for their salvation. He prayed for the kingdom. And more importantly, and this is it, this is the caboose on today's train, he prayed for you. The author of Hebrews tells us in his letter to the Jewish church that Jesus is able to completely save those who come to God through him because he is always interceding for them. Jesus is still praying. And he's praying for you. He's praying for you if you don't know yet, you're not sure. He's praying for you if you hate God, you hate church, and you don't want to be here today. He's praying for you if you don't know what to do. Where are you going to move next? What about your next station of duty? Do you want to stay a teacher? It's gotten harder and harder. Is the medical field really good now that you have kids? What are you going to do about this life-changing disease or diagnosis or surgery? Jesus is in prayer even now. It's part of the perfection of who he is as the great high priest that he sits down. He doesn't have to eternally offer sacrifices anymore. The work is done, and now he speaks to God the Father about you. He's at God's right hand in heaven. He does that all the time. That is our Jesus. This is our king. This is our rabbi, our brother, and our savior. There's no one better. I want to pray with you. Will you pray with me? Let's praise the Lord for who he is and what he's done. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the depths of meaning that leap off the page to us as we study and understand the life of you, Jesus, the Son of God. Spirit, meet us here today, please, and do your work. We know that you will, even if we don't ask you, but we welcome you. We welcome your presence. We welcome your influence. We need it where it's going to be painful, God. We need our hearts and souls and minds chipped away, changed and transformed by you. We pray, God, today in unison with the Son for ourselves, for our families, our city, for the future. For the past that haunts us, God, the healing that we still need, we come to you in prayer and we acknowledge your presence, that you're here and we're here, and that's the whole thing. Father, we love you and we thank you. I thank you for this church, for these men and women and their families. God, bless them, draw them close and keep them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.